This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back everyone and thanks for listening. I believe there are four major tools in the anti-hunger toolbox. Hang on and I'll give them to you in just a moment. First, a tool is only as good as the craftsman who is using it. Approaching this stubborn and meddlesome problem of food insecurity across Michigan is no different. We need the right tools for the right job and the right people working with those tools to get the right outcome, a food secure state. In order to create food security, these four tools and the people using them must work together And here are the four tools. Government has a role to play with both programs and policies that reward work and help people build wealth instead of de-incentivizing employment. The purpose of the welfare program that some abhor and others want to expand was, and I quote, to use the wealth of the nation for lifting those in need so that they can have a chance at a better life, too. Leaders of government can neither ignore this responsibility nor abuse it. Number two, the business community and owners have a role to play from small business owner to corporate executives. Wages, whether they be minimum, living, or otherwise, must address the gap between what people earn and what they need. And this should be addressed using unbiased data such as our self-sufficiency standard. A one-size-fits-all dialogue will not suffice if we really want to create a sustainable solution. Number three, the people who are struggling with food insecurity have a personal responsibility to solve this problem that's evident in their own lives and must strive to do so. I speak from experience. I was once struggling at a time myself, but I can tell you that you must be determined to outlast your circumstances and develop a refuse-to-lose attitude. Lastly, the Food Bank Council of Michigan and our network are critically important to this mission. No entity can provide such cost-effective delivery of foods that people want and need as our network. And what's more? the food banks have earned the trust of the people we serve. Hanging in the balance are the children, and it does not matter to me about politics, philosophy, or preaching. Letting children go to bed hungry at night while lamenting the state of our workforce for the future in Michigan is an illogical inconsistency for both faith and practice and remains unconscionable for any leader anywhere to accept, especially when we have the ability to address the scourge of childhood food insecurity. Jerry Brisson joins me in a moment with Carrie Calvert from our Feeding America office in Washington to discuss the fate of kids across America and the wake of policy changes taking place in D.C. Come back and be with us.
Welcome back, everyone. As promised, Kerry Calvert, the Managing Director for Government Relations for our national organization, Feeding America. Kerry, welcome back to Food First Michigan. Thank you so much, Phil and Jerry. It's great to be back on with you guys. Well, you're um, kind of on the front lines there, as always, in Washington, D.C., representing the, the people that we serve, as well as the interest of Feeding America and all of its members. Um, and I think we have, what, Jerry, 208 different food banks across the nation that serves every county in the nation. That's right. So That's exactly right. It's 208. And you are the CEO of the... Food Bank Member of the Year, baby. We are, you know, I I don't know if you can actually say the number one food bank, but, you know, why not say it? Why not? Well, you know what our marketing team says. It's true until somebody proves that it's not. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, that that was a nice thing that happened this year. And, obviously, we're really proud to be affiliated with Feeding America and all the wonderful work being done by all those food banks serving our community. So it was quite an honor. Well, one of the great things we have with Feeding America is uh, is uh, representatives in Washington, D.C., looking at both practice and policy. And, Carrie, you're the Managing Director for Government Relations. And so tell us a little bit about that job as, as it relates particularly, and then we're going to give you some very specific topics that we want to get your input on. Great. Well, uh, sometimes it feels like herding cats, especially when we're trying to gain support in Congress for, you know, federal programs that can help address food insecurity and hunger. Uh, Sometimes these aren't always the most popular programs or the most exciting programs of the day, but they sure are to us. And, you know, our work is really made possible and strengthened by the -the on-the-ground work that you and Jerry are doing nationwide, as well as all of our other food banks. I mean, that is really what gives Feeding America's voice resonance and meaning in Washington, D.C., because we're speaking on your behalf and on behalf of the people that we're serving. And, um, you know, one of the messages we continue to talk about is the fact that um, unemployment is low, the economy is recovering, but for a lot of families and individuals, recovery has been a hard thing and it's been slow going. And so we want to make sure that Uh, the people that are struggling and facing food insecurity have a voice in D.C. And when we got the latest information about food insecurity in Michigan, the group that was unchanged were children. Mm -hmm. I mean, we saw some improvement in the adult population in terms of the number of food insecure people, but children were unchanged. And so, you know, we have to ask ourselves some pretty tough questions about who's being left behind and why. And it's it's just not the people that, you know, most people have in their mind, you know. So getting getting our point across really clearly about who needs help, how much help do they need, and how often, articulating who's really hungry and what are the consequences when you start changing these programs, especially before you really study the impact, or in the case of the child nutrition reauthorization, being unable to advance that legislation after, what is it now, 10 years? How many years has it been since the last overhaul of that? It's been 10 years. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, now, again, it's not to say that, that the community hasn't benefited from that important legislation. We should probably talk a little bit about what that is. But every program needs to be improved. There's no program 
by any food bank in the state of Michigan that hasn't been improved in the last 10 years. I promise you that. So, you know, these are really important conversations that you're on the front lines helping us have. So, Carrie, why don't you tell us a little bit about what is the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act? Tell us a little bit about what it is. Sure. So the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act, as you said, it's been 10 years since it was renewed in 2010. Uh, And this act sets the policies and the structure for child nutrition programs. So the National School Lunch Program and the Breakfast Program, um, after-school programs that the Department of Agriculture funds, uh, summer feeding programs, the Women, Infant, and Children Program, All of these programs are vitally important to addressing child food insecurity and making sure that children have the food they need to thrive, which uh, we know is a national security issue. In fact, that's why the National School Lunch Program was established, because, um, you know, uh, young men that were being um, that were joining the military during World War Two were malnourished. And it was really a national security risk. Amazing how it's easy to forget those things when you get far enough away, but so important to remember them when it's time to talk about why is this program valuable. So that study is still relevant today because it's been followed up with another study, and the the name of that study, Don't Shoot the Messenger Here, is called Too Fat to Fight, and it was commissioned by retired generals throughout the armed forces that essentially says that many of the children who are Uh, coming of age and could go to uh, service in the military are simply obese to the point where they would not qualify and pass the physical standards test in order to get into the military. So the, 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 you know, I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So, I mean, I think that it is still a national security issue, uh, even listening to Carrie as she talks about the history of it. Hey, she's Carrie Calvert. She's the Managing Director for Government Relations for our national organization, which is Feeding America. She'll be right back with Jerry and I in just a moment. You come back and be with us. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. We're back as promised with Carrie Calvert. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. That's Jerry Brisson sitting on the other side of the WJR microphone. If you and could only see my smile. Uh, it's, it's stunning as it <laughs> always is. Carrie Calvert is the Managing Director for Government Relations with Feeding America. And we closed that last segment with a reference to a current uh, study uh, that uh, kind of links... Uh, obesity and qualifying for military service. Uh, Carrie talked about it in World War II. This study's a little more recent than that. But you guys off air made a point that we should connect a couple of things. Yeah, so Carrie, tell us a little bit about the connection between nutritious food and obesity. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You wouldn't think that uh, food insecurity can lead to obesity. It, um, But, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why hunger can be so hidden in the United States. Um, In a lot of communities, uh, food insecurity really leads to a lack of nutritious calories, but it doesn't always lead to a lack of calories. Uh, You know, I'm sure we've all seen at the grocery store that sometimes a bag of chips is cheaper than a bag of potatoes. And, you know, buying 
inexpensive calorie-dense foods is unfortunately a coping mechanism that a lot of families facing food insecurity need to resort to. You know, fresh fruits and vegetables are really expensive. Um, I know that, Jerry, I know your food bank and a lot of other food banks across the country are really doing a lot to, to try to connect people with nutritious food and to also make sure they have the nutrition education they need to um, nourish their families as best they can within their budget. And it's even interesting how um, food that has a a certain amount of sugar or a certain amount of uh, sodium um, or even to some degree the saturated fats, how the body gets, I I mean, it's probably a little bit strong to say addicted, though some studies use that word, but how our bodies get used to that and expect it and it changes what we actually desire. So there's so much about nutrition, which is um, still emerging in terms of our understanding, but we certainly know that when people have less money to spend on food, they end up buying what's less expensive and filling, and often it leads to obesity and not nutrition. So, Carrie, let me ask you, on the CNR, on the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act, uh, it's been the same that it's you know, for 10 years, is, is there any light at the end of this tunnel or are we going to be able to, I, I saw recently where uh, Senator Roberts was not going to take it up, but you know, what, what's the future here? You know, it, it's really hard to tell. I think the the good news is that the programs continue, um, even if the, the Child Nutrition Act is not reauthorized, but it doesn't give us a chance to make some, you know, bipartisan changes to expand access to ch- child nutrition programs. So, uh, it's hard to tell what Senator Roberts is going to be able to do. He really wants to pass child nutrition as um, sort of one of the last things he needs to do as chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee before he retires in 2020. Um, and he has a strong tradition of working with Michigan's own Senator Debbie Stabenow, of uh, working with her in a bipartisan manner. And I know that uh, Senator Roberts' staff and Senator Stabenow's staff are working together to try to, to draft a, a bipartisan committee draft. Um, but the Senate, it's, it seems like it's always an election year, but this year especially, it's going to be challenging for the Senate to find time to vote on a lot of pieces of legislation. So we're really hoping that um, the Senate Ag Committee leaders come back ready to consider a committee draft of child nutrition and vote on it in September so that if there's a chance to to uh, debate and vote on it on the Senate floor, they can do so. Uh, You know, I expect this to be largely a bipartisan effort in the Senate. Um, These are programs that have a lot of support on both sides of the aisle. And uh, we hope that we can impress upon senators that this would be a a great thing for them to to work on and pass to, to show their constituents that they really want to address child hunger. Well, unfortunately, I don't think that bipartisanship on both sides of the aisle is the issue because Senator Roberts said just recently that he was not going to take up CNR here in the near future because of proposed changes by the administration. And two of those proposed changes is the change from the uh, consumer price index to the chained consumer price index that Jerry and I have covered here on the show in recent weeks, as well as even last week, we talked about the broad base categorical eligibility. So um, because of these proposed changes by the administration, Senator Roberts, I guess, feels a bit handcuffed in order in, uh, in, in his ability to advance the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act. Would that be fair and accurate? 
Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. Uh, it's always hard to tell when senators will will share information freely with the press like that, um, what message they're trying to send. But here's what I do know. Um, the proposed changes by USDA to broad-based categorical eligibility in the SNAP program would have a negative impact on the number of children that qualify for free and reduced price lunch. It's not that these children wouldn't qualify for free and reduced price lunch if these changes are made, but the uh, automatic connection, if they are participating in one means-tested federal program to ensure that they are receiving free and reduced price lunch, won't be there. So, you know, USDA's own estimates show that you know, what, around 500,000 children will lose that automatic connection. You know, how many of those families are going to realize, I now need to apply? How many schools are going to realize, I now need to take several extra administrative steps? You know, the entire rule greatly increases administrative costs for the federal government, for states, and I'm sure for local organizations and entities as well to make sure that people can participate in programs that they're eligible for. So all of this does not help when you're trying to negotiate a bipartisan bill. But why, um, let me just ask this real quick. Why spend money feeding kids when you can spend it on administrative costs? (laughs) Uh, Right. Why indeed? You know, I think think that's the the challenge, right? Um, You know, people hear on the news that, oh, uh, a millionaire in Minnesota was able to receive SNAP. Yes, by lying about his income and assets. Right. Just because you use broad-based categorical eligibility to qualify for SNAP and to reduce paperwork does not mean that applicants don't still have to, you know, fill out a somewhat simplified application. They are still looking at what your income and assets are to determine if you're eligible for the program. And let's not forget how many individuals are food insecure yet make too much for SNAP and other federal nutrition programs. Well, 47 states, by last time I looked this up, 47 states were using broad-based categorical eligibility in order to help reduce the administrative burden of the programs and make sure people have access. So it's not 47 blue states, is it? (laughs) No. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty much states. everybody yeah. is is taking advantage of this. I'm talking about states, not human beings here. Though <laughs> yeah. so they're made up of human beings, I want to be clear. But the states themselves find it hugely helpful to have um, and are using it regularly. So, again, this is something that people have agreed helps, not hurts. And so it's just odd to see these kind of proposals come around. Right. You know, I think... Um you know, the, the change CPI you mentioned um, earlier, basically um, it would change how the federal poverty, poverty rate is calculated. Right. And the administration, it's not, it's not a proposed rule. They basically said, we're interested in this. Send us your thoughts. You know, it was an invitation to submit comments. And Feeding America and many other organizations did, uh, probably on, on both sides of this policy position. But the reality is, um, if you are changing the the way that the federal poverty rate is calculated and how inflation is uh, factored into the federal poverty rate, you are going to make less people eligible for federal assistance. So you're basically going to be changing how the federal poverty rate is calculated. So instead of interest compounding, 
um, it won't, right? Yeah. So basically, it's not going to grow upon itself. And when you look at what goods cost and what whether wages have kept up with, um, you know, uh, food and other goods inflation, this is one of the things that factors into it. It's why uh, normally if you talk about Social Security and change CPI, it's not a popular thing because – it's making it harder for people on fixed incomes or people in poverty to get help. So, Carrie, we agree. It should be changed. The federal poverty measure should be, the, the way that it is calculated, it should be changed. But the change CPI that you're talking about takes it in the exact wrong direction. Whereas if, exactly. we, if we looked at something like what we published here in Michigan in the self-sufficiency standard, then we would understand the needs and what is truly the right calculation for people to be self-sufficient. And surely self-sufficiency as a concept is something that we can all agree about, regardless of what our political persuasion might be. We want people not to need us or need the government. And you know what? The people we serve, they don't really want to need us either. So I think we'll have to pick this up on the other side of the break, along with a couple of other things we want to ask you about. She's Carrie Calvert. She's the Managing Director for Government Relations with Feeding America. That's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're back here on Food First Michigan in just a moment. Food First Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with Carrie Calvert, Managing Director for Government Relations at Feeding America. And, uh, you know, we talk about this in the monologue. We talked about it kind of a thread through the show. But, Jerry, you know, really the bottom line is we, we've made some great progress here in Michigan in food, creating food security. We've got about 1.4 million people who are still food insecure across the state. That is to say they don't know where they're next meals are coming from, and about a million of, uh, of those are adults. And we made some progress with that group, as you mentioned. About 400,000 of these uh, folks that are food insecure are children. And, you know, we find that particularly disturbing. Well, especially because all the conversations everywhere all the time have to do with making sure the next generation is fully prepared not to reach their potential just for their sake but for all of our sake right these yeah. are the leaders that are going to be leading when we're ready to retire now that's still a ways off i know but nonetheless right we uh well so we talk about workforce um here in michigan a lot right and so you know a child not having the right food and the right amount of food and the right kinds of food, they just don't have the opportunity to develop so that they can grow and learn and mentally, physically, emotionally, so that they could be a very positive contributing person in our society and assume some of these higher skilled jobs that we're creating across the state. And living under the toxic stress of food insecurity has its own negative consequences outside of nutrition alone. Sure. You know, so it's debilitating, it's demoralizing, and it, it affects, you know, things people carry with them for the rest of their life. So, obviously, I don't think that's news, but I do think it's important to reiterate because part of why we want to create a food-secure Michigan is so that we can see that 
no longer happening and that we really know, at least in our state, we can be proud of, of that legacy that hopefully we can help bring about. So, so with that as a backdrop, Carrie, tell us some of the, some of the things you've seen in, in your world that, that have been exciting about how we're reaching kids today. Sure. Well, first, I think there's really, even though we were a bit not entirely optimistic about child nutrition uh, reauthorization bills passing uh, in Congress this fall, there's a lot of excitement and interest in Congress in tackling this issue. So, um, you know, the National School Lunch Program really is sets a gold standard in terms of uh, the number of children that are participating in and are nourished by the National School Lunch Program. But it's been a lot harder to grow participation in the other programs that address, um, you know, feeding children, particularly during out-of-school times, like summer food. In fact, only the program really does not reach everyone it should. 83% of children that are eligible for the school lunch program are not participating in summer feeding programs. And it is hard. It is hard to reach children in the summer. Uh, we have seen some exciting innovations that have been happening on the ground, whether it's, um, you know, mobile food distributions or innovations on the summer, um, you know, the summer feeding site model where kids are going to YMCA's and Boys and Girls Clubs and other things like that to get food. Uh, there's several states that have summer grocery cards that they've been innovating with, which I'm excited to see because you're basically looking at kids that are already eligible and saying, oh, great, you know, let's make it easier for you to have a summer grocery card so your family can buy the food you need for these summer months. Um, so I'm sure, Jerry, you have so many examples, both of what Gleaners is doing and other Michigan food banks are doing to feed kids um, that are far more um compelling to Michigan listeners than, than my broad national examples. Well, I think it's nice to showcase alignment. And I'll tell you what, those grocery cards really do make a difference. I mean, so so just explaining a little bit about summer feeding, it's the kids show up to sites that, that might even be at school still, but many of them are at community centers and other places. But in order to take advantage of the program, they have to show up every day. And then the, the meals, which are prepared meals, again, somebody had to take the time and, and we as a community are spending the cost to have those meals prepared and then distributed based on a reasonable guess at how many kids are going to show up any given day. So that's the backdrop of that program. When you give a family a uh, summer grocery card, you eliminate a huge percentage of the cost of providing those meals. And the families are going to the store picking what they want. So you don't have to guess at the number of kids. You don't have to guess at the, the, uh, the actual items because you know what your kids want and they're preparing it for those kids at zero cost to us. So when you right. look at just just the financial implications of that innovation, it makes total sense to approach a huge part of this program from the perspective of let's trust parents to do the right thing. Parents will do the right thing if you trust them to do the right thing. So, so again, I, I think kind of digging underneath why that innovation matters to us. Mobile's uh, uh, 
is a similar situation where it, rather than giving them a grocery car- card, we're bringing food on site that they can then take home. So then if your kid is sick and they can't go to a, to a summer feeding site, you're actually going to say then you don't get any food? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Really? But that's the way it's set up. So if we can give food for families to take home, it accounts for all the things that happen in that family's life that may or may not enable them to get that child to a specific site just to have lunch. And, again, drives out the cost of food preparation, tracking and monitoring for food safety reasons, and the actual preparation uh, or or the items themselves that the kids want to eat. Mm -hmm. So you have less waste, you have less cost, you have much higher penetration in terms of the number of kids you can reach. So it's just smart, and it's part of the reason why we'd really like to see the nutrition bill get debated, because there's so many things we know about how we could do more and better with less. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting... um, you know, I'm a parent of, um, I, let's see, I now have two high schoolers and my fifth grader is moving into middle school this year, so she'll be in sixth grade. But, you know, um, keeping kids busy and active in the summertime is a challenge for working parents nationwide, much more so for, for lower income working parents who struggle to find affordable childcare in the summertime. And one of the great things about you know, summer programs and summer meal sites is that, you know, kids are getting activities and other things during that. So, um, you know, interest and participation in summer, uh, you know, enrichment programs, that's going to continue no matter what. But there are so many kids that can't get to those sites, whether they're in a rural community or there aren't enough sites where they are or whatever the reasons, uh, we want to make sure that all of these other ways to reach children are there as well. So it's really complementing and wrapping around the services that summer feeding sites and programs can already do. Um, And I think there's also some ways to make the after school and the summer programs work together easier from a paperwork standpoint. Jerry, how many hours does your staff spend filling out paperwork between the after school and the summer programs? Yeah, I don't even think you yeah, can count it too all. many, you know, too many. There's a and and the truth of the matter is, if you don't do it, the meals don't get reimbursed, and then you're just you know paying for those meals with without any uh, reimbursement, and that takes away other programming, right? So you really need to do the paperwork, but it does take quite a long time. So I think there's a couple of fundamental philosophical things here that you guys are discussing, and and I want to I want to say a Jerryism if I can. You can't have a food-secure child in a food-insecure home. So I think when you look about the efficiencies of the summer feeding program as it has historically been structured, then it's ridiculous. It is low efficiency, low penetration, does not really meet the need. The only thing it really accomplishes is it keeps food out of the parent out of the hands of the parents. The way the legislation is written now, it, which yeah. it, so you can't. So it's an extremely um, uh, costly program to run and operate as it's been structured. So it's really difficult for someone who is a fiscal conservative to justify. I I want to keep food away from the parents, so I'm only going to feed the kids. But this is one of the highest, most expensive programs that we support. You can't hold both those values in the same 
at the same time. You got to let one of those go. I suggest that you look at these innovative models and you change the policy, you change the legislation, and you do what you said, which is trust parents to do the right thing, which is feed their children. And when you trust people, guess what? More likely than not, they're not going to disappoint you. So I'm, I'm sorry we're about out of time here, guys, but I listened to the both of you. You inspired me, and I got on a little rant there, but <laughs> that's to be expected. Carrie Calvert, Managing Director for Government Relations for our national organization, Feeding America. Thanks for being back on the show with us, and uh, give, give our best down to Kate Leon as well. And uh, we appreciate how you guys are standing in the gap for the rest of us here across the Feeding America network. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Jerry and I are back in just a moment to wrap up this edition of Food First. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, that was Kerry Calvert standing in the gap for our efforts, I might say, in Washington, D.C., working with uh, Kate Leon, the Senior Vice President for Policy and Advocacy for Feeding America. They got a pretty good team down there, and I, I got, I'm always impressed with with Carrie and her insight as well as knowledge. Well, you know, they keep they keep an eye on things so we know what's going on so we can be effective here. And uh, by the same token, we have lots of boots on the ground that can give them real information to help our policymakers and legislators make good decisions. And so when that works, it's phenomenal. It's it, it really creates positive change, and we talked about some of those positive changes on the show today. So, you know, it was very nice to to have her and to to hear what she had to say about some pretty important things regarding kids and nutrition. Right. Well, and I, you know, I sense a bit of a theme. It's not like we want to ignore anyone who's struggling under the toxic stress of food insecurity, but I think there is a bit of a movement if you would. And that's why we rebranded the show and restarted the show. We wanted to do more than just change the conversation. We also wanted there to be movement toward real lasting, sustainable change. And I think there's a lot of people having this conversation about finding 400,000 children who are going to bed hungry at night as an untenable situation in Michigan. In fact, I have some good news to report. So the Michigan Health Endowment Fund just agreed to fund a two-year project at a Warren Consolidated Schools with the Michigan Department of Ed, uh, Gleaners, and about 15 other partners, and as well as the Food Bank of Eastern Michigan and a school district there to really study how we can do a better job of making sure that families are food secure when they have school-aged children. It Why does it take two years? Because we're going to look at everything. We're going to be very thorough about making sure that every dollar is spent in the best way possible, as well as making sure that outcomes like reading level at third grade by third grade are achieved as a result of food security. So it's pretty exciting. It's just, it was some phenomenal news we just got. And uh, so fun to share that we made some real good progress in terms of what we're going to be doing in Michigan to address the issues that we talked about on the show today. So, I mean, I think it's a great example of 
public and private partnerships at several different levels. Here's a state organization, Michigan Department of Education, and Dr. Diane Godzinski and her team. And then, um, you know, the Michigan Health Endowment Fund has been partners with us through the years that they've been in existence. And uh, now two of our food banks looking at this program that's really aimed at, as you said, third grade reading level by third grade, which is a a law in Michigan, um, but also is looking at stabilizing the family and keep helping that family stay in district and but also is. Looking at attendance and behavior and some really cool stuff. All of the things we think are negatively affected when households are food insecure and will positively change by not just asking for more money, but by taking the pool of money we have and spending it wisely so that you can do both more and better for less. Well, it's time for a little food for thought. Stephen Covey said, every human has four endowments. Self-awareness, conscience, independent will, and creative imagination. These give us the ultimate human freedom, he said, the power to choose, to respond, to change. So I think this show is a great example, and this particular show and Jerry's announcement about the Michigan Health Endowment Fund's partnership with us and others to create positive change. And that is the true test of leadership. So I say, as my namesake would say, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, let's do it. Let's change. And let's create positive change for the folks that we serve and all of our communities. And let's do it together. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And until next week, remember, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.